coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Hometown Stories. It means a lot to us. If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you shared us with a friend, left us a review, or subscribed to Hometown Stories. That way, you basically get first dibs as soon as we release a new episode. You can also email us at hometownstories at wdbj7.com. We'd love to hear your hometown story. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. In April of 2007, the Virginia Tech campus became the focus of international attention when a gunman killed 32 people in one morning. For local journalists first on scene, what they saw and heard that day is forever ingrained in their memories. In this episode of Hometown Stories, we sit down with the journalists who were the first to tell the stories of the horror that unfolded on April 16, 2007. We invited former WDBJ7 journalist Rachel DePompa, now a reporter for Channel 7 sister station NBC12 in Richmond. We also invited senior reporter Joda Scheel, chief photojournalist Sam Doyle, and retired WDBJ7 news anchor Keith Humphrey. In this candid roundtable, they share the memories from that day that never made air, and they describe the camaraderie developed out of grisly work that tied them together forever. Well, first of all, I want to thank you all again for participating today. Um, I know it's been some years since that day, but I know it was obviously very impactful uh, for a lot of you to cover it in the ways that you did. Um, Some of you were on scene. um, Some of you were behind the scenes. Some of you were on the desk. And so I think your recollections and your perspectives are both unique. And um, I think that people will have a lot of interest to hear what you have to say. So Rachel, I'm going to start with you. Um, what was your role at WDBJ7 at that time? And what do you remember about that day prior to hearing about what was going on at Virginia Tech? Hi, yeah, I was the New River Valley Bureau Chief at the time. I had been at WDBJ for probably about two and a half years. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. Every detail, it sticks with you. Um, And I find that the further removed I am from that day, the more I feel it, which is interesting. So um, I remember that morning really well. It was uh, early in the morning and I was preparing to go on a long journey for WDBJ to cover a sex offender case in West Virginia. So my photographer and I were you know, preparing for a journey that day. So I remember getting up really early and packing and it was around 7.30 in the morning and Dave Seidel, our assignment manager, called me and said, there's been a shooting in a dorm room on the campus. And that's all I know. And I don't think you're going to West Virginia. And I, I was trying to process that because this was a big story and a big thing that we were about to cover. And like, and then I started thinking a shooting on the Virginia Tech campus. How can that be? 
how can that be? I've never covered a shooting on the Virginia Tech campus. And I remember just, I was already packing and already dressed and ready. So I just got in the car and drove straight to the bureau, which was about 10 minutes from the Tech campus. And I made it to the bureau at around eight. And so I was in the process of leaving, heard about the first shooting, which was the shooting in the dorm room at West AJ. And then I got to the office before the shooting at Norris Hall began. And I can tell you more about that moment, obviously later, but I was sitting at my desk when that started. Sam, I'll go to you next for your recollections of that day. I'm kind of like Rachel. I was uh, in engineering and driving the satellite truck then. I thought we were headed to Cincinnati, though, for that. And You know, um, you know what? It was Ohio. It was Ohio. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was up in a little north of Cincinnati. And so I had gotten an early start to get ahead, and it was – I was driving through snow drifts and everything uh, headed up when Dave Seidel called me and said, I think we've got something. You keep going, and I'll, I'll call you if, if, if you need you. And I told him, you know, I was, I was right almost to Ghent, right there at Winter Place Ski Resort. And the next exit after that, it's some distance away. So I told him I would pull off there and wait. Well, I had just pulled off, stopped, and he called and said, get back now. So it was, it was, uh, I drove the speed limit all the way, yes, uh, to get back down there. And he was explaining a little bit of what went on. And um, actually got back on campus, this, and it was after Norris, and everything was going over there. Uh, Rachel and them were trying to direct me and got over there, got the truck set up, ready to go on, and then they moved us. They were... They wanted us all over at the uh, conference center, hotel and conference center. And it was a bitter, cold day. The wind was blowing. And so we rushed, or I did. I started tearing everything down again and, and rushed back over to the hotel and conference center. Got over there, got the, got the dish up, but the wind was blowing so hard. And this this was a large truck. Uh with a big dish, but it kept blowing us off the satellite. It was how hard the wind was blowing. And uh, so I had to break down again and back up against the building. And, um, you know, we were, we were the first ones there. And I can remember Rachel and Lynn both coming out because they had just made the announcement that there was 32 people. And um, at that point, it was a, Oh my goodness! And then it just it just kicked in. Just became I just become a robot. Get everything on. We needed to start coordinating how we were going to handle tapes and what was said. And we had to get their tape because that second move caused me to to miss it. So uh, and then it, it it got exciting for the, about the next five days. Joe, I'm going to go to you next. What do you remember that day? What when do you, when did you first learn that something was going on at Tech? Sure. Well, I was a reporter in Roanoke, and I, I don't really remember if I got a call from our assignment editor Dave Seidel or whether I was just sent as soon as I came into the office. But um, I hit the road immediately for Virginia Tech from Roanoke, 
And at that point, all we knew was there had been a shooting at, at West Ambler Johnston, the dormitory. We didn't know the full extent of what had happened. And so uh, I hit the road in a microwave truck with photographer Howard Swank. And one of my first impressions of that day was driving down Interstate 81 towards Blacksburg and state police and other uh, first responders uh, from other police departments in the area were just flying by us on the interstate. I mean, it was like nothing I had ever seen. And so we got a, an early sense that, that something terrible was happening in Blacksburg. Um, we ended up getting to Blacksburg going to West Ambler Johnston. And it was a very eerie scene there because there was no one there. I, we got to West Ambler Johnston and expecting there to be this, this large police presence and there was hardly anyone there. And so it was a while before we really uh, understood the, the full extent of, of things. But by that point, uh, the focus had, had moved across campus to Norris Hall. Keith, I'm going to go to you next. Uh, I know that you spent a considerable amount of time that day and in the following days on the anchor desk. What do you remember about that day? I'm sure that I arrived at work uh, with something in mind in the way of a story to work on, but was soon uh, disabused of that notion and told to get ready to go directly on the air. Uh, there had been a shooting at Tech, and that was about all we knew, I think. Um, and so I uh, managed to sort of throw myself together and um, got on, on the set as along with Gene Jadhan, with whom I was anchoring the six o'clock news at the time. Um, and we um, spent the day on the air. Um, um, it was, I was told later that our signal, thanks to Sam, was um, the CNN signal for some period of time because we were, as he pointed out, the first ones there, first one with a, a live uh, feed out of the uh, campus. And so um, we knew we were in for the long haul, but of course had no idea that it was, I'm not even sure we knew that there had two people had been killed at the dorm at that point. Uh, we just knew there'd been a shooting. Um, and so it was the ultimate, um, you know, the kind of thing you look forward to as a professional being able to work your way through a live experience like this. But um, the, the also the thing you dread most because there's no script, there's no information you're, you're left to. You obviously can't be making it up, but you are hopeful that somebody is going to start talking in your ear pretty quick before you run out of things to say. And I'm not sure we succeeded in that because there was a lot of uh, um, tap dancing, I'm afraid, before we got solid information. What were the first things that you saw and the first things that you heard when you arrived on campus? I want to back you up to when I was sitting at my desk in the office because that was the moment that stays with me before I ever got to that campus. And there's so many things I saw that day that you know, you can't forget. But I was sitting at my desk trying to figure out, get Patrick there, my photographer, so we could go to West AJ. And then I had a portable scanner sitting by my desk and it started going off. And the screams that I heard on the scanner of emergency personnel yelling, 
we need ambulances. We need a lot of ambulances. It still gets me today. I can still hear it. So I remember I grabbed the portable scanner and I jumped in my car. Patrick went separate and we went two separate cars. And I started driving down 81. I'm 10 minutes from the campus and I'm being passed left and right by emergency vehicles just screaming past me. And I'm going like 90 miles an hour because I know something bad happened. And I called my mom. I'll never forget. I called her on the road and I said, mom, turn on the news. I don't know what's happened, but something really bad has happened. I'm okay, but you're not going to hear from me for a while. And I, she was like, what? And I just hung up the phone and I pulled up to the drill field and I could see the ambulances. I could see police vehicles everywhere. I was directly across from Norris Hall, across the drill field. And I jumped, I left the car running. I remember I was in such a panic because the emergency alert system was going off and it was telling you to stay away from windows and, and doors and there's an emergency and just stay where you are. And I remember I left the car running and I jumped out and I started running across the drill field towards Norris Hall. And police were on the either side of me screaming at me to get back because I, I didn't know what was going on, but I was like, something really bad is going on. And Patrick had pulled up on the other side of the drill field. So I was trying to get to him. And I finally remember I got back in my car and drove around and I was on the backside behind Norris Hall as the last shots were fired. And I remember, I'll never forget, we have video of it. I'll, I, this kid runs by me and he's got these bolt cutters and he just runs right by me and he's holding them. And, you know, later on I found out it was because the shooter had bolted the doors and they needed bolt cutters to get inside, but he ran right by me. And I remember Lieutenant Bruce Bad Bradbury was the PIO for the Blacksburg police department at the time. And he was there and he's screaming, get back, get back. And next thing I know, he, is in a he's got a vehicle in front of me and there's injured in the vehicle and he's driving them to the hospital. And then I remember Sam finally calling and saying, I'm here, I'm here. And we're trying to get to Sam. And it was so windy, it was so cold. It was snowing. It was so wild. It was like, it, it, cause it was April, but it was snowing. There was just, I remember flakes of snow coming down and, and it was so blustery. And I got to Sam and we, he just said, just go. And Sam, I couldn't see anything. And I remember Sam telling me what pictures were on the screen that WDBJ was airing. And um, yeah, it's, it's crazy how much I remember of that day. Um, just because it's just something, it's a visceral experience. It's a, and, and I knew it was bad. And when I knew, I knew it was bad enough to call my mom, which I think says speaks volumes. But when we finally got to that conference center, when they made us move and Sam was setting up outside and I went into the conference center, I saw the mayor of Blacksburg at the time, uh, Ron Rordham. And he looked me in the eyes and he was crying. And he said, Rachel, it's bad. It's so bad. I remember I couldn't catch my breath. 
Sam, you are dealing with technical challenges. You are dealing with weather. You had to focus on the task at hand, like you said, be robotic almost. But what were the sights and the sounds from that day, not only of your team, but of just the environment that you remember? Well, that that first lot that hit that we did there behind, essentially behind Norris, we couldn't see it. We couldn't get any closer than what we were. And and I had forgotten that's how we, I, I, how we knew what was going on by what what video they were playing, and um, and that that became a theme because that every and we were on on DVC Pro tape then every second of tape went through that truck and it went through that truck. I don't know how many times we were feeding essentially the world because this turned into a world story. Um, but yes. Um, and, and I'll reiterate too, cause I was coming back from West Virginia. So I was really coming the opposite direction of everybody and the police cars were rolling. They were rolling out of West Virginia. They were rolling out of Giles County. Parisburg, all, all coming down through there. Um, kind of got in when went as fast as I could go with the truck. Um, those first moments when we're getting there, and, and of course Rachel had come up and told me what what went on, or it wasn't good. It wasn't good. But never, never did I think that it was that bad. Uh, and in the fog of it, you know, you you hear so many things. People running past me, people coming up to the truck, asking us, "What did we know? What's what's going on?" Uh, because n- now, over in that area, it's really built up. But back then, it was roads and parking lot. There wasn't the parking garage. There wasn't some of the buildings that are there now. Um, there were students, there were townspeople. Uh, I grew up 12 miles from Blacksburg in Roanoke County. So I had family up there and I had family coming by. I had friends that worked on campus that I'd grown up with. And uh, when they saw the truck, they came over. Uh, Once we got moved over to the hotel and and by this time, you know, the station had, had rolled everybody that we had, calling them in and everything. But I started started getting all those tapes. So I really saw it that way. I, I, I didn't hear the scanner, but I was every piece of tape. And the in-between times of when we weren't doing live shots, and we, we had microwave trucks back then. We didn't have the little backpacks. So we had... Two, we had three microwave trucks, um, and there were certain places around campus that we could get, so we 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 had them there. Uh, but I was getting all of those tapes, and it was a steady feed out. We fed everything to CBS, CNN, like he said that they took our signal. Um, it was NAB conference out in Vegas that they have every year about that time. 
and uh, we had a lot of management out there, a, a lot of people. Well, they walked into the CNN booth, whether they two, three hours behind us, not knowing what's going on. And that's what was in the NAB display or in the CNN display out there. And then my phone started ringing. What do we need? What do we need? And it was just kind of like hang up and didn't have time to, to worry about that. We had to keep getting it out. But in those, after the initial shock of 32, everything, it just seemed like everything just, just, it, it drug, it went on, but there just seemed to be information coming out. Some of it in the fog again was nothing, but it, too much of it was true. Joe, what Sam said, the initial shock of 32, what do you remember when you heard that number and then how you went on from there? Sure. If I can take you back a little bit just to, to when I arrived. So Howard and I arrived at on the campus at Virginia Tech and we again went to West Ambler Johnston uh, where we expected to find a great uh, police response and there really wasn't anyone there. Initially, we set up in the parking lot next to Castle Coliseum and basically watched as uh, a lot of uh, police vehicles came flying by us on their way over to the other part of campus where Norris Hall was located. Um, we were in a microwave truck, which is you know, a, a vehicle that we used at the time to get our stories back to Roanoke from a live shot location, it required line of sight where we had to set the truck up in a location where we could point the, the tower on top, the transmitter on top, back towards our transmitter on Poor Mountain. So we needed to find a location where we could get a clean shot back to where our, the receiver on our transmitter was located. Um, there weren't many spots right down in the heart of the campus where we could go live from with a microwave truck. And of course, we couldn't get down to one location out in front of Burris Hall where we normally could go from because that was right in the heart of where all of this was taking place. So I was sent um, to another location high on a hill near Lane Stadium uh, where we knew we'd be able to get a signal out. So I was standing up on this hill outside of Lane Stadium, not far from the Virginia Tech Police Department and kind of a, a back way into the campus. And so I stood there and saw police vehicles and other first responders you know, flying in for a couple of hours. They just kept on coming and kept on coming. And so I was doing reports, uh, providing live shots back to the station before we really knew the extent of what was going on. And the, really the extent of what I was talking about was just what I was seeing there on the hill near Lane Stadium, which was a lot of uh, emergency vehicles coming by us. I remember um, standing there and listening to our air signal as we were doing our live shots. And you all can correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is that the first uh, time we really had a sense of just the magnitude of what was happening, there was a report that like 20, there were maybe 20 plus fatalities. It wasn't the full 30 plus. We didn't and know so, the full 32 for a while. And right. That, and that... so I, re I remember Keith and, and Gene saying it was like, we have a report that there are 23 people who've been 
killed. And I just remember a sense of disbelief. That, that couldn't be true. You know, 23 people couldn't have been killed in this situation. And yet, of course, we would learn not too long after that, that it wasn't 23, it was actually more than 30. That moment that you're talking about, Joe, um, I remember it well because the sat signal, like that he was trying to set it up, Sam, and it didn't work. And we were on a phoner at that point. And I was on the phone with Keith and Gene. And I remember it vividly. I was relaying what was being said at the press conference. And I said, Gene, Keith, I have the recording still. And I said, Gene, Keith, it's 20 to 30 casualties. And Keith said, casualties? He said, 20 to 30? Like to double check me. And I and I was like, I remember I had tears streaming down my face. And I was, because it was on a phone. And so nobody could see me in the audience. And I was just. 20 to 30, Keith, 20 to 30 casualties. That's all we knew that first time we had information that came in. And I think at that moment, I remember, Keith, and you could talk about this. I remember you and Gene on the desk just trying to process that. I remember it myself, Rachel, uh, that you were telling us this, and I was as disbelieving as anyone. And I, I literally didn't believe it. And I turned to Gene and I said, did she say 20 to 30? And we were on the air and um, I was aware that I had a hot mic and I didn't know how to ask the producer to confirm this or whether how true it was. And I think there was just a moment of stunned silence and a blank look on both of us as we let that sink in. It's because it, nothing like that had happened to that degree in this country until that time. What do you look back from a professional point of view? What moving forward throughout the rest of your career, do you did you mark time between before that day and after that day? I mean, in the days that followed, how do you reflect back on what that experience was like and and the the feat that you guys actually achieved by remaining the, on the air for so long? I it was such a long day. And I thought at the time that it was so momentous that I was convinced that we were doing a reasonably good job. And I felt that I had a high energy level and I was doing the best we possibly could under these difficult circumstances. Later, I looked back on it and I looked whipped. I was exhausted. I was beat by early afternoon and we had not dared get out of our chairs. We were sitting in the studio for all those hours until sometime in the early afternoon, I'm guessing it was 1.30 or so, President Bush came out and made a statement about the incident. And Gene and I realized there was gonna, might not be another opportunity. So for the first time that day, we took a bathroom break. And fortunately, we were, I think we were both back just as the CBS gave it back to us. And we were once again trying to come to terms with what we knew. One last thing for you about the, the early hours of, of that day, Keith, is there anything that um, I'm sure obviously in the background, it was a bit chaotic, to probably is an understatement, but what might viewers not have realized at home about what you guys were attempting to do that day? Um, 
I, I remember long after this, maybe Rachel can tell me when it was, uh, she and I went on the road to Tidewater and spoke to a, a group of first responders. And was that a year or more after which? I think it was about a, I think it was about a year after. Yeah. Um, and it seemed to me that they had a, an entirely different perspective in their questions and the, the kind of information, which is what I, I fear whenever I talk about this and I don't talk about it a lot, but when I do, it seems like I, it's easy to get caught up in the frustration of news gathering from afar, or even in the case of Joe and Rachel who were on the campus, uh, but still stymied by a lack of um, reliable information in a timely manner. <clears throat> but um, in the end, I think that we acquitted ourselves, but it was absolutely exhausting. And, um, you know, the, the, the days and weeks afterward, it was, I, I remember reading that Scott Pelley feels he has PTSD from having been in lower Manhattan on 9-11 in 2001. And I, I don't know that I'd go that far, but it has stayed with me. To that end, Rachel, you mentioned being emotional the day of, not only anticipating what you were going to find out, but what you did find out and, and having... Had you ever reported on something that impacted you emotionally, that tested you in this way to, to try and do your job at the same time that you're trying to also manage something so horrific on a personal level? Yes. At Virginia Tech, uh, William Morva went on the run um, and killed a security guard and a, and a sheriff's deputy. And it was about a year prior. So it, it was, was it was it was the first day of school. It was yeah. the first the first day of tech and then the thirty two ended up being the last day of school. Yeah. That it was, was how how it was bookend, the first day of classes. Yep. And that's why I called my mom that morning, because a year like several months prior when William Morva had gone on the run, he had killed a sheriff's deputy. And I knew that deputy and I had to go on the air from, and I think Sam was there and we went live yes. from a press conference and I'm pretty sure Gene and Keith were on the air with me. And I, I cried on the air um, delivering the news because the sheriff, Tommy Witt turned to me and he said, Rachel, Rachel, it's Eric. It's Eric. And I knew Eric and Eric was gone and I had to deliver it in a split second moment. And CNN had taken our feeds that day. It was a big thing because a, a campus had been shut down. It was the first time Virginia Tech had ever shut down. And then several months later, when this started to unfold, is when I called my mom to be like, it's okay, I'm here. But that day, obviously the two don't compare in any way. I think it prepared me to cover something like that. I felt like I was in a bubble covering it and I didn't really have a full perspective until a week after um, of what had, I was, I literally was in a bubble in that conference room that first day on the air with Keith and she, like, I wasn't allowed to move either. I was in front of a camera and they kept, and I was their go-to like, Rachel, what's, what are you hearing now? Rachel, what's happening now? And I couldn't move. 
or go anywhere. And I was just relaying whatever I was hearing. My, I, I'll never forget my phone. I had two phones. I have a work phone and my personal phone. Both phones were just exploding in my pocket over and over. And the majority of the calls were people, my friends in Blacksburg who were missing somebody. And they were like, we can't find Jeremy, Rachel. We don't know if he's one of, and can you help us? So it was a wild experience because I'm talking to Keith and Jean. My phones are buzzing the whole time. Anytime they let me have a break and they didn't need me, I would answer the phone and get information. But a lot of times it was just people. And then people were watching me on TV and they were coming to the conference room to ask me if I could help get out their name of their friend who was missing. So I don't, it's, it's a crazy to think back. Uh, like I was compartmentalizing as we do as a journalist and I was delivering information, but behind the scenes, like on that phoner, I was crying at the magnitude of it. And then I got myself together and I, there was another release that Joe can tell you about too. Like that last day on that Friday, it was Len, Sam, Joe, me, and we all hugged it out at the end. <laughs> And Joe has pictures, and it's actually a picture that's on my desk right now at work of me and Sam hugging in the truck and me and Lynn hugging. And What do you think about when you look at that picture? Oh, it's, it's a double. It's two things. It's that day. It's that day just you think about that day, but I think about the great people and the team that I had around to get us through that day. Cause we all leaned on each other really hard those days, especially all of us that were in Blacksburg together at that time. And like, we all had each other's back. We all knew what everyone needed. We all knew what Sam was in the truck. He knew when I needed something to say, he needed to tell me something that was on the screen because I couldn't see it. Um, in that day and age, we didn't have like a little TV monitor next to us. We didn't have time to set it up. You know, Joe was there and there were just calming forces, calming presence. And I, I just think of how fortunate that we all were to work together. What do you remember about that hug, Sam? Oh, well, it was, it was a very long week. Um, one thing with Rachel talking about her phone, the one thing remembers back then, it's not it's it's not cell phones like this. It they basically flip phones or whatever we had, and there. I mean, you could go outside of Blacksburg and have zero coverage. Somebody had the foresight to bring in a tower. Um, I don't know how, and that's how we connect it back to the station. That's how they got cues. And I didn't. I was on the satellite for thirty six hours straight. That's three days before we stopped because I constantly fed stuff out. I just would re-rack the tapes and feed them because everybody was started rolling in. And I, 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 I don't think I've ever seen that many sat trucks in another place. They were in the back, on the side, in the front. They were around other places in campus. I even set up a table outside that I fed stuff out so people – I didn't have time. I just set up and – you plug in and you can get, you know, get the tape that we had. Um, but at the end, it, it was exhausting. I was in that truck for five days. 
I, I did not, I did not come home. The truck ran. We brought fuel in. Uh, Mike Bell arranged that. He got fuel to us, and um, I, I remember when when the network started rolling in, and Katie Curry come in for CBS Evening News, and they set up this monstrous uh, set for her. And then one of her guys had come over and he wanted the tapes and I would not let him have the tapes. I had already fed everything to CBS and, uh, but he was going to physically take the tapes and we, we almost come to blows that day. I was tired and it's like, you're not getting those tapes. But at the end, I don't, we were all exhausted. Um, every I don't think there was anybody at the at, in Blacksburg at the station that was not completely spent and left nothing nothing on the field. There was there was nothing left, uh, and it had ran automatic for so long. Uh, I put the plug in. I credit my training for the Marine Corps to be able to just block and find. Th- I was finding things to do to get my mind off of what had went on, but still keeping up with what, what had went on. Joe, I know I, going back over to, I think I was reading some, um, scripts from that day. Um, I think you went to a church where they were doing, uh, some, like a prayer service or something in addition to the immediate, immediate response, the day of the day after, what did you also report on and what do you remember um, about, you know, the community response to this? Sure. Well, initially, of course, we were just uh, reporting for most of that first day uh, just on the news that was coming out uh, from official sources and what we could learn uh, from from other people in the area. Uh, but once we got out of that immediate uh, just responding to the the situation of the moment, uh, we started to cast a wider net in terms of uh, what we should be covering, who we should be talking to. And one of those things that I did on that first evening was, uh, or afternoon was to go over to a church in Blacksburg where they were holding a prayer vigil uh, for the victims of the, the shooting. Um, but we were, I believe we had crews that were at the hospital because of course, a number of people had been injured and were uh, receiving treatment there. Um, I think we, we, we tried to fan out in the community as, as well as we could. Um, I believe it was the night, uh, the same night of the shooting that um, the Virginia Tech community came together um, on the, the drill field. Um, and that was one of the iconic moments of, um, of those first days when, uh, and others can do a better job of explaining that, but when um, I believe Nikki Giovanni uh, spoke and when the cry of we are Virginia Tech uh, with people, hundreds, thousands of people holding candles, I mean, that was a, a very stirring and emotional moment. And I hope some of the others can talk about that as well. But then, I mean, we continued our coverage. I mean, I don't think we covered anything else for 
several weeks. Um, I know one of the more memorable uh, stories that I was involved in was interviewing the family of Jarrett Lee Lane, who was one of the victims. He was a young man from uh, Giles County who was soon to graduate. And I was able to sit down with his mom and his siblings and to hear them tell the stories about what an outstanding young man he was and to really impress how tragic it was. I mean, he was just a perfect example of, of all 32 uh, in terms of a young man just starting his life. It was a very diverse group of people, all kinds of interests and um, really uh, wonderful lives ahead of them that were, of course, cut short. And so um, that was just one of the stories that I was involved in, but we were on the story, obviously, for, for weeks in, in the wake of the shootings and, you know, tried to cover it from as many different angles as we could. Rachel, um, Katie Kirk interviewed you, right? Yes, that night uh, with Bob Orr. It was myself and Bob Orr and Katie Kirk. Uh, I'll, I remember when she got there, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon and somebody said, hey, Rachel, Katie Kirk wants to meet you. I was in the, like we, were, we had stopped finally broadcasting, I think at that point, like continuously. And I turned around and she was right next to me. And she said, hi, Rachel, I've been watching you all day. You've done an excellent job. Will you go on the show with me tonight? It was just, just that quick. And um, yeah, she interviewed that night and we talked about what I had seen that day. And that was sort of surreal, but I, I don't know. I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't process or think about what that meant or that my parents could watch at home in Maryland or anything like that. I, I was still just, you're just working at that point. And also at that point, you couldn't let yourself feel what was happening or you wouldn't be able to do your job. Um, you know, you, you just had to like laser focus up. I'm talking to Katie Couric. I'm interviewing this person. Keith and Jean asked me a question. Like it was that basic to get through. And I, it wasn't, I think it was a good two weeks later, WDBJ sent me home one day and said, you're just stay home for a week. Just, just, you've covered enough. You've covered enough. It's actually, I'm very thankful that they did that because it, it was very hard to be there through all that. Um, one other thing I wanted to tell you is the viewers are amazing in Roanoke and so amazing. And it, that was a time when we didn't have emails on our cell phones and unless you had a Blackberry and I didn't have a Blackberry. So I never saw the emails that people were sending me from that day, from the 16th, 17th, 18th. I never saw any of them until the 20th or 21st when I finally was able to go into the office. And there were hundreds and hundreds of emails from the viewers encouraging. I, I printed every single one of them and I still have them. And every once in a while, it's, it's so hard to do though. Every once in a while, I'll open it up and look at them because it reminds you what, why you do what you do. Because a lot of the, the messages from the viewers were just, thank you for being there. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for being real. And thank you 
for being there with us. And I know Keith had a lot of messages like that. I know Jean, I'm sure Joe, like, I just, I don't know why, but I printed on them all and I'm glad I have them. I want to ask each of you how that day, that week, those weeks impacted you as an individual and as a journalist. I want to start with you, Joe. How do you think that um, looking back 15 years back, it affected you as an individual and a journalist? Um, when I think about the day and the days that follow, um, I, I think of moments that we experienced, whether it was driving to Blacksburg on the interstate and seeing the first responders flying by us, whether it was standing on the hillside near Lane Stadium, hearing that there were actually more than 20 casualties and later more than 30, uh, whether it was speaking to the family of Jarrett Lane. But one of the most memorable moments for me is that moment that Rachel was describing. Uh, when at the, the end of the week, uh, we'd been covering stories nonstop. And there was that moment, I guess, of release when we got through the six o'clock newscast on that Friday and Rachel was hugging Lynn Eller, Sam Doyle. And I think we all had just this sense of, you know, what have we been through and what, what have we I don't know. Again, I think we just had a sense of release after so many difficult days. Sam, how do you think that in your role, you know, you, you saw every single tape, you saw every single piece of video. How did that impact you personally and professionally? And then, if, and then moving forward, how did that affect you? Well, like Joe said, uh, you know, the, the the hug at the end was I, I knew that we had done a good job uh, the advantage I had was not only be out there but I was in that truck where I could see everything with Keith and Gene everything coming from everybody uh, let alone the tapes I could I could see the live shots I could hear the producers I so I had that all the time and um I, I knew what everyone was going through. Um, I know today, team seems to be the the, the word today. Um, and I always say that back then, you know, we, we were family back then. We weren't a team. But, but that day, that week, that time after that, we have been nothing but a team. And I felt like it mattered. I felt like what we had done had mattered. Um, I can't. I can't go any further without you know thinking about those thirty-two and and why we were there. I, I think. I think we did the best that we could to get their stories out, and it, and they were from all over. I think, um, you know, to 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 hear all of it is bringing up a whole lot now with um, to know that those 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 families lost them and it feels kind of weird to talk about how good of a job that we did but it prepared it prepared us for a lot um or did me i mean i by then 
what, 2007. I had 17 years and I never thought that I would have anything like that and, and, and be a part of that. Instead of what happened at the station then, a dreadful day in August, uh, to us personally, at that point, I think I know what everybody up there felt in that tech community, the New River Valley, um, because I saw it again. I relived that again during that period. And, uh, but I could never be more proud of, of, of that group that we had back then, all professionals, all good. And what we turned out is what journalism's about. And I, I base so much on that. If I could handle that, if I could stay in that truck for five days, I got to go home eventually. Um, but those kids didn't and their families don't have that. They've, they've got their memories, but they've got a marker and this, this comes around every year. And I'm sure it it is just as, uh, poignant now as it is then was then, but I still think that we did so good. I was never more proud to be around a group of people. And that's what that hug was. I, I couldn't be more proud of what we did. Keith, you saw it all from the anchor desk. You saw everything that came in in front of you and Jean moving forward. How do you think that that impacted you personally and professionally moving forward? I would just like to reiterate what my colleagues have said about how everybody worked together in the sense of family, the WDBJ family, and uh, Sam has alluded to the more recent uh, horrible incident in 2015 that uh, really impacted us as a family. Um, I was retired by then, but back on the air uh, to help out a little. And so with all of that came rushing back, the kinds of unity and and, uh, camaraderie that this outfit was known for um, over the years to our communities. Um, I don't want to slight my colleagues at all because I think they've each touched on it, but I do want to make the point that while it had an impact on us, it was physically draining. We went home totally spent and exhausted, yet proud of our work, I think. Um, As Sam alluded to, and, and Joe mentioned the senior who was killed from Giles County, those that's what we should remember most, those people who, um, whose lives were cut short 15 years ago, and we have gone on with ours. And um, it's hard to balance the two, but it was just so emotional. Rachel, we'll wrap with you. You had mentioned earlier that it was challenging and emotional for you then in one way, but as the years have gone by, when you look back at it, the emotions almost continue to grow stronger. Why do you think that is? And for you um, personally and professionally, what kind of impact did that have on you? I know you mentioned you keep that picture up on your on your desk, but 
what is it do you think about time passing that only adds to the emotion in the recollection? Because I'm still here and they're not. As you can tell, I still get so emotional about this and it grows <laughs> the further I get away, which is so bizarre to me, but it makes sense too. Um, you know, like when I hear their names, when I hear the 32, I remember where they were, what room they were in, what happened in that room. Some of the stories stay with you, like Labrescue, you know, Holocaust survivor. Who's protecting his students and standing at the door holding, holding back the gunmen. It was so many weeks of coverage and I got to know so many of them that died. And then I went to a different TV station and they, the first thing they did when I got there was send me back <laughs> to the year anniversary. And then they sent me back to the five-year anniversary and the 10-year. And it changed me as a journalist because it really made me think about in the big moments, in the big events, making sure that we all keep our humanity and in those moments of thinking about the people on the other side of that TV who just lost somebody. And it, I changed jobs because of this. I moved to a different city because of this event, because I was trying to get away from the sadness. And then when I got to the new job, I ended up deciding I don't want to do general assignment reporting anymore. I don't want to knock on somebody's door and tell them if ask them if they will talk to me because their loved one just died. And so it changed my trajectory of career where I said, you know what, I'd much rather do consumer and investigative reporting where I can feel like I can help somebody and I can keep the emotion of the violence that happens on our streets away from me. And as you know, as Keith kind of mentioned earlier with Scott Pelly, like I do feel like I have PTSD from that time. I think it's pretty clear just as I get further and further away, it's, it grows and grows and grows. And, and um, in 2015, you know, I really was upset that day for my WDBJ family and did not work as a journalist that day. And instead, you know, it, it was just, it was tough to, to see that from afar because I knew so many of the people in the building. And so, yeah, so, so April 16th is with me forever. It's a date on my calendar. I know very well. It's a date I knew was coming this week. It's a day that I wake up in the morning and I remember where I was. And I remember the events of that day as they unfolded as the day goes. But I also remember how great everyone was that I worked with. And I remember how wonderful the viewers of Roanoke are and Blacksburg. And I, even though I never went to Virginia Tech, I did go to the University of Maryland and I'm a proud Terrapin. I feel like I, a part of my heart is in Blacksburg and it always will be.
Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.